0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Aaron Sumner. Based in Astoria, Oregon, Aaron has over two decades of experience as a software developer and is currently a senior software engineer at O'Reilly Media. You can follow him on Twitter at Ruralocity and check out his website at aaronsumner.com. And you can read his blog and sign up for his newsletter at everydayrails.com, as well as follow the Twitter Twitter account for the blog at Everyday Rails. Aaron is the author of the LeanPub book, Everyday Rails Testing with RSpec, a practical approach to test-driven development. In this interview, we're going to talk about Aaron's background and career, professional interests, his his book, and at the end we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you, Aaron, for being on the Front Matter podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and
1: how you first became interested in software development. Sure. Um, so I grew up in a... Uh, a rural area outside of St. Louis, Missouri, on the Illinois side of the Mississippi River. Um, and we got our first computer in the classroom uh, when I was in fourth grade. So that maybe puts a date on me a little bit. It was uh, one of those Radio Shack computers that you hook up to a TV and you're off to the races. And uh, uh, got I, I started to learn to program on that and uh, never really... It was just kind of something that I did on the side, just, just kind of for fun to make graphics or make really terrible games or something like that. And um, then when I was at the University of Kansas, uh, for my undergraduate, was right when the web was taking off as a thing. And so I remember there were uh, – the, the the main computer center where the upstairs was where there were computer labs with Macs and PCs and people could – you know, type up their papers or whatever. Cause you know, most people didn't have a computer at home yet even. Um, but then downstairs were where all the the mainframes were and the, 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 the servers and things like that. And all of a sudden everybody had to have an email account and there was a line outside the door of this building, people just waiting to get their first uh, university email account. And, uh, So I was, I was there finishing up school as, as this was all just kind of taking off and, uh, just kind of wound up going in that, that direction instead of my, my undergraduate degree is in journalism and I never really formally did anything with it. I wound up, um, hooking up with some people who were doing some interesting things in, uh, in research, in education that they had a, a lot of stuff they wanted to do on the web. So I went to work with them and, uh, just kind of learned on the job as I went, learned, learned some Perl And then that led to Java and PHP and, um, eventually to, to Ruby. And I worked with that group off and on for probably close to 15 years. I kind of left a couple a th- couple times for a short stints elsewhere, but always wound up back with them. And then, uh, in uh two thousand thirteen I was at railsconf in Portland and um, saw a flyer on the the job board that O'Reilly media was looking for a rails developer and i've I've always that was one of those uh publishers that I was admired I, I had the 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 big thick um pearl book that I spent money on a book instead of beer in college and <laughs> bought, bought that and uh Um, so I was always kind of held them in in high regard and, um, knew one of the editors there and asked him, do you think I should apply? And he said, yeah, so I, I did. Um, the plan was to move to out to California for that, uh, that wound up for personal reasons at the time. I couldn't do that, uh, wound up, they made it a remote position. So I started my first five years there working from Kansas. And then last year I moved out to Oregon, seamless from a from a work standpoint. Um, and yeah, so I work on the uh, um, the back end for O'Reilly's conferences. So like if you've ever attend, attended um, like OSCON or the software architecture conference, some of the older conferences like Velocity and Fluent, uh, which was the, the web conference. Um, if you ever pr- spoke there or registered to attend or sponsored, uh, you used our software for that.
0: Thank you for sharing that, that great story. Um, it's, it's a couple of things in there I'd like to talk about. One of which is, um, something you, you said pretty quickly about when people get into, in the olden days, when you got into programming, one of the things you might do is do graphics. Um, mm-hmm. and it's funny, I think for a lot of people who, um, aren't dated the way you and I are, um, that sounds funny. And, you know, to like... So just to spell out the example, it reminded me a very clear image I had of a friend's older brother who spent hours and hours and hours typing in each, each, basically each pixel to make a Detroit Red Wings logo Mm -hmm. appear on the screen. And there was something at the time very magical about being able to type a command and see something happen right before your eyes. And, and people really, it was so magical that people really would spend hours and hours and hours just like defining the color for like each pixel on a screen mm-hmm. individually.
1: Yeah. I, I remember that I designed my own baseball cards for players that I liked as a kid. Um, and you know, there were terrible, super low res. You had to have a really good imagination to say, oh yeah, that's who that is. Um, but, uh, I, I had fun doing it and, uh, um, yeah, it it led to bigger and better things. And so
0: you studied, what led you to study journalism at university?
1: Um, it was kind of, uh, just a a little bit of happenstance. The, the, uh, the journalism program where I attended at the university of Kansas is, was, and is, uh, highly regarded. And my focus was in advertising. And the reason I went that route was it was a good, um, It's a good mix of a lot of different things like, uh, like writing and design and psychology and, uh, the sales part, I wasn't always great at, but there was some sales aspect to it. So, so some, uh, like person to person interaction type stuff. And, uh, I liked that it was, it, it, it combined all these things in like a practical way where I could graduate and go get a job and, and not, like, okay, I've, I've got a liberal arts degree. What now? This is before you could kind of dovetail that into a software career or things like that. Like My, my friends who had overlap because they were like maybe English majors or, or literature um, wound up going into call centers right out of school. And that, that didn't sound appealing to me. They've, they've gone on to great things since then. But at the time, I was like, I, I want to get done with school and, and get out and start doing something.
0: And you, so you're a self-taught programmer?
1: Uh, pretty much, yeah. I, I mean, I, I won't pretend that I didn't have some uh, great people along the way kind of guiding me along, but I've taken maybe two computer classes, and, and one of them was super, super, like, intro. You know, I could have taught the class. I don't, don't want to sound like I'm bragging about it, but it was like my, my last semester in school where I had my capstone project it's going to be taking all of my time, but I needed some hours to fill in. So, yeah, I took like intro to computing, which was like, this is a mouse and this is how you use it. And uh, again, dating myself a little bit where some of those things were new to people. But um, I, I admit I did that just because I needed some hours that would not take too many brain cycles from my my uh, capstone work.
0: It's really interesting um, how things have changed with regard to that just even in the last 10 years, but with things like Khan Academy and, you know, MOOCs and being able to learn online and things like Stack Overflow and even Google itself um, have changed the way people learn things. And, you know, back back in, in those days when you were learning, it was, you know, literally go to the bookstore and get a book. Mm-hmm. on something. And if there wasn't a book on that something there, then you maybe checked another bookstore or borrowed a copy from a friend or something like that. And people would actually, I mean, this is this is how you learned how to do it. I mean, in addition to the trial and error and community that you could develop like kind of in person with people, you really, mm-hmm. like the resources that were available were incredibly diminished compared to what we have nowadays.
1: Right. It it was, it was books or you go into a university program and spend four years learning something and then still have to buy the books to know how to do it on the web.
0: Yeah. So that's actually the question I wanted to ask you next is related to that. So, uh, and this, this, this this has come, comes up pretty frequently on this podcast, but uh, do you, do you regret not having studied computer science in university? Do you wish you had done that?
1: Um, There are some things that I wish I um, had a little bit of a better grounding in at times. Um, like there are maybe some things around, say, uh, really digging in deep into, to algorithms or something like that. I, I, I am not one to, uh, just like sit down and, and have a deep discussion with, uh, a fellow engineer about which, which, which algorithm is best or what do you think about, I don't know, but, um, you know, it, there, there are things that if I need to learn it, I know enough to know how to find what I need to learn and, uh learn what I need and then apply it. But I've I've never had to uh, understand things just for the purely th- theoretical reason for understanding it theoretically, like, like you would maybe uh, in a university program. And I, I don't regret that. Um, there, there are times where knowing this algorithm instead of this one would make something a little bit faster. Um, and that's where it's good to know. But um, that sort of thing is increasingly getting abstracted away from us. I think we're Somebody much smarter than I am has has uh, figured that out and made it so it's easy for me to apply to my problem.
0: Uh, speaking of, of your problems, um, I just before we move on to the next part of the interview and talk about your writing, uh, I wanted to ask you about your work for O'Reilly. So you said you work on the back end of, of the conference side of things. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are more or less in the tech world and they're familiar with O'Reilly. And I, I mean, I'm certainly curious, what kind of work do you do on a day-to-day? What, what are some of the problems or projects that you work on on, on conference tech?
1: So like I mentioned, um, the uh, the app that handles pretty much everything that, you, at least it handles the back end of a lot of it a lot of a lot of the parts of it are moving out to um, to standalone um, front-end applications uh, but the back end that processes everything so whether it's um, so let's kind of start from the top ish where the, the, uh, the planners at O'Reilly, I decide okay, well, there's going to be this event, OSCON 2020 in Portland or whatever. And uh, the call for proposals opens on this date and runs through this date. So the system for that is on our back end. And uh, um, so then you decide okay, I've got a great idea. I want to talk about uh, open source in self publishing or something like that. And I want to submit that talk. So Go in and submit your proposal that goes through our system. Um, fast forward a little bit to where the proposals are up and you decide, oh I want to attend this event. So going in and registering and saying, oh, you know, which package do I want? Some of them might have extra tutorials or workshops that you have access to versus uh, just attending the regular you know 30, 40 minute sessions. Um, so going in and registering, uh, this handles that. Um, lots of reporting on the back end for how many people need uh, vegetarian meals versus regular meals. Soup to nuts. it's it's. Uh,
0: so you said soup to nuts. Um, uh, and I, I saw on your profile on LinkedIn that you also work on security initiatives.
1: I do. Um, so the engineering department is broken up into teams that work on their own parts of you know, conferences is a one part of everything that the company does and we all have um representatives um that meet on a team regularly to kind of discuss uh both high-level security initiatives and what we're doing on a team-by-team basis so um i do a lot in terms of education within the department about best practices um and then uh just making sure that the that the software that we ship is as secure as we know how to make it.
0: Uh, so this, oh right, so this is this isn't like you know the conf- the security of the conference, like keeping bad guys out or something like
1: that. Oh no, no, we we have uh, we have professionals uh, who <laughs> kind of. I, I think I think the uh, the uh, the the venues provide that level of security. I, I fortunately don't have to to show up and like look tough. <laughs>
0: Um, and so, uh, moving on to the next part of the interview. So you eventually started writing a blog. Uh, how did that come about?
1: So the, um, the blog, uh, predated the book, um, and was one of those things where I, I learned a lot from, um, the Rails community in particular. Um, I, I was, I was pretty well ingrained in Ruby at this point and started thinking about what are some ways that I can, uh, Contribute back to this community, and I was noticing. So I was involved in a a small uh, local meetup where I was living at the time in Kansas, and there were some of us who were doing Ruby development. Uh, some people were doing PHP. Some people um, doing a lot of people doing Python. Uh, Django came out of Lawrence, Kansas, where I have lived a good while. Um, so we would all get together and just kind of talk about talk shop, you know. And, um, there was, there were a couple of people in particular who were a little newer to rails than I was at that point and, um, would ask questions and I would answer them. And I kind of realized, you know, if, if this is helping one or two people here, maybe it would help a few more people if I put it online. So that's how the blog kind of came to be. Uh, it was inspired a lot by what, um, Ryan Bates did with Railscasts, which was, a uh, a weekly video service with, you'd have, you know, five ish to 10 ish minute long videos where we would talk about, here's how to use this, this library to do authentication with your Rails app or, um, you know, whatever, whatever little piece of functionality. And, uh, he probably built up, a like four or 500 episodes and then then called it quits after a while. But I want to do something like that, except more in traditional blog form where, you know, I could I could write more than talk and uh, um, list out code and and just try to find some uh, find ways to to help people who um, maybe weren't as far along with it as I was at that point so yeah it um started that I don't even know the date anymore um, several maybe nine years ago or so at this point and uh, built a little following and yeah I don't write there as much as I used to but every now and then if there's something that uh, interests me that I think other people might be interested in I'll I'll write something up there.
0: And one thing that you've written about quite a bit is uh, testing, software testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you actually one of your more more recent posts was how to do test driven development when test driven development is hard. Uh, and we <laughs> might be talking a little bit about TDD in a bit. But for those who are, imagine you're talking to someone, who, and as I'm sure you sometimes do, who's totally unfamiliar with how the computer goes. What what is software testing? How does that how does that work?
1: So the way I like to. Um, describe it is, you know, imagine you're, um, you're building up some software kind of bit by bit and the first few features, you can open up what you're working on in your web browser or on a simulation phone or wherever the, the, the end platform is. And you can click around a little bit and you can see, okay, yeah, I think this is working. And if I, you know, what if I type something, a really long string in here, oops, that broke. Okay. I can fix that. And I can go back and reload it and okay, now that works onto the next next little bit of functionality for my software. And that's that works pretty well when you're work when you're starting out. but over time, that doesn't scale. Um, where you uh, as you add each thing, not only do you have to test that new thing, We have to go back and manually test all those other things to make sure that the new thing didn't break something that that you wrote two weeks ago or two years ago. So um, the the first win with software testing is it helps you automate that sort of thing. So you can test all that in seconds rather than minutes or hours or days. And then... um,
0: and just just a, let's, let's just maybe have a concrete example here. So the the way I was introduced to software testing when I joined Lean Pub was I, I'm the sort of resident non technical person, um, and so it's like the, all the all the programmers have done something. then go break it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I was always in working with things from the user the user's side. So it's like if we created a new feature that we, when you click a button X is supposed to exit X thing is supposed to happen. So I would go click that button and see if X happened and see if X happened properly. And, you know, I got pretty good at this. I mean, I'm never formally trained or anything like that, but just like I call it cowboy testing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and um, and it, in a way it's a kind of fun challenge, um, especially if, you know, you didn't build the code yourself, so you're not embarrassed if something breaks. Uh, but um, but I think what you're talking about is a, is quite a bit different from, from that.
1: Yeah. So um, what you're talking about is definitely an important part of it where Um, It's good to have that second set of eyes just kind of looking at everything um, before something goes off into the wild and you have, you know, real customers paying you money for something that you don't don't want it to not work for them. Um, But what the automation starts to give you is more of a rapid feedback loop. So instead of me writing a little bit of code or writing a bunch of code and saying, okay, Lynn, uh, here it is for you to test. And um, you find something that, you know, h- had I known about it a week ago, would have been a quick fix. But I've piled up so much more stuff on top of that, that, oh, that fix is going to be another two weeks um, versus uh, automation where I can really quickly iterate through finding those things that are, that are uh, wrong or that are going to that look right. But as soon as I say, oh, but it also needs to... Um, Validate that an email address is valid, or whatever. Um, oh, I need to go in and, and fix that. So um, it really tightens up that that loop and helps the person writing the code um, do it a lot more quickly. And then as you kind of get comfortable with the tooling, um, write it more efficiently in terms of from from your head to the keys to the screen, um, on on down to being designed better from a from an architectural standpoint
0: um and it's really it's really interesting how the role that culture plays in things in how software gets developed and one of the reasons i like to talk about this in depth in in these interviews is that you know software has eaten the world mm -hmm. everything you do has software behind it and so the culture behind how that software was made matters just as much as the culture behind the company that built the bridge that you drive over every day Mm -hmm and i was interviewing a computer science professor once who talked about how we're sort of, we're sort of still in the like we've been people have been programming for decades and decades now but we're imagine if you were only 70 years into the medical profession or something like that and one one great image i like to bring up in that and, and he well anyway he talked about how like we're only now kind of at the point where we're learning you need to disinfect before you operate mm-hmm. uh, and the, the example I like, the image I like to give of that is that, you know how in a normal man's suit, there are still buttons on the sleeves, often even if you can't unbutton the right. sleeves. Those are from when surgeons wanted to be able to unbutton their coat to roll up their sleeves. Oh. Uh, so they could operate and not get blood on their mm-hmm. sleeves. But of course... That you shouldn't be operating in the coat that you just came from lunch with, you know, and it took people a long time to learn that uh, for all all kinds of really basic, well, complex reasons, actually. Uh, But so test-driven development is the idea that you should be testing as you go. And it can actually be really, that, that that can actually be really hard to convince someone to do, like let's say a superior, because it slows down the development, at least in the local
1: sense. It can, especially up front. Um, There's a a quote that I like, and I think it's from Kent Beck, but I'm not certain now. Um, But the notion of slowing down to go fast, um, I I think it's just like anything. Like like I remember when I was learning how to drive a car and I was out on a country road and I was maybe breaking seven miles an hour and I just thought I was – just zipping down at a million miles an hour, just kind of felt like everything was going by so fast. And you know, I'm sure the instructor was just rolling his eyes as I was creeping along there and uh, super timid. Um, but, you know, as as you get comfortable with, you know, how the wheel feels in your hand and then how much you have to turn it to, to go this far left or how hard you have to hit the gas or the brake or whatever, um, you get more efficient with it. And it, it, it eventually gets to something where you don't even think about it a whole lot. You're just, OK, I, I need to go to the grocery store, get in my car. And then five minutes later, I'm there. And you know, for better or worse, you may not even remember how you got there. But um, I think that testing is, uh, is similar, where as, when you're newer to it, there are two ways you can go about it. Um, one, you can sit there with a blank screen and say, OK, I, I know I need to write a test first. But I don't know what I'm supposed to write. But the same could be said for, you know, I've, I've got a blank screen with software that's supposed to do something, and I don't. I, I know it's supposed to add up to 45, but I don't know how to write the code to make it add up to 45, or, or to make this cool animation uh, on, a, on a web browser or whatever. Um, the with testing over time as you get to know the tools, um, you can say, okay, I I know that it's supposed to be 45. Now let's kind of back up and think about, okay, what are my inputs that are, they're going to take that I'm going to bring in. So whether they're, that's nine times five or whatever. Um, and then how do I say, okay, bring this in, make this happen. And then the result of that should be 45 or, you know, whatever the, the order is complete or the, the, um, the markdown has been, rendered into a PDF, or or whatever it might be, Um, the the testing and the coding just start to kind of interweave with each other, where you're writing a little bit of test and a little bit of code and a little bit of test and a little bit of code. And that's where um, you're talking about those feedback loops that gets a lot more rapid so I can see, yes, I'm on the right track, because the test tells me I'm on the right track, rather than, okay, I wrote a bunch of code and say, okay, Lynn, could you test this for me? and i have to wait hours for you to get back to me or because you're busy and
0: yeah it's interesting you mentioned the feedback loop because i think
1: at least one way of developing software that
0: was in the past conventional probably is now was to have you would have maybe a non-technical executive sitting on top of a bunch of managers that report to him or her and those managers might not be technical but then they've they've got like buckets of activity that they have categorized. So for example, there's the person who writes the code and then conventionally there's actually, it's a separate group of people that test the code. And so a bunch of people might write some code, give that code to the manager who then goes and gives it to the, I mean, I'm just putting this in a kind of cartoonish way, but like has, has to go and then give it to a bunch of people whose only job is to test that code. And then this can create an adversarial relationship between the coders and the testers, and it can also create a sense of hierarchy in the organization where the person who's doing the testing is lower down than the person who's doing the actual coding. And so combining these processes overcomes, in order to combine these processes, you often have to overcome a lot of institutional practices that are, mm-hmm. are baked into just the, the, the organizational structure itself.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um... I've been lucky to work with some really great, um, like QA type testers like that, where, um, the, the, the work that, that we do up front as, as developers to kind of check our own work as we go, kind of makes sure that their, their time is going to be better spent. They're not going to be finding silly errors. They're going to be fine. If they find something, it's because, oh, wow, you know, we didn't even think about that. Um, that's a, that's a really, uh, you know, it, it's a weird case, but it's legitimate enough that we need to address that before we take this live. Um, we're not just kind of saying, "Okay, here's some code," and you know, "Oh, you you, you spelled the company's name wrong here." <laughs> to, to like use a really uh, simplistic example, but um, yeah, I, I think it, it makes every step of the of the process um, more efficient over time, and, and makes sure that the the people doing that traditional testing, like you described. Um, are really testing things that matter and not just testing to make sure that we spell their names. Right. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of testing, uh, you had a, you had a line that I really enjoyed from uh, a blog post that I think you published in June. The line goes, who here remembers when we had to make sure everything still worked with some shitty old version of internet explorer. Yeah. Um, and so I was wondering if actually, if you could talk a little bit, a little bit about that, what, what has changed such that you no longer need to test to make sure everything works with some shitty old version of internet explorer.
1: Um, yeah, you know, unfortunately I think we're getting back to that stage <laughs> where there's, there's there browser differences and, and I don't do a, as much front end development as I used to, but, um, for a long stretch, um you know, libraries like, uh, jQuery, which is a JavaScript library that, uh, was and really is still very popular, um, across the web to, um, it, it, to do some work so that, you know, I, I write my, my interactivity with jQuery and then jQuery does the work to make sure that it compiles down in such a way that, uh, Internet Explorer can, uh, can, uh, work with it properly and Google Chrome and Firefox and not just the current Firefox, but maybe a Firefox few years old. Um, the good news is some of those really, really old versions of internet Explorer or, yeah, they there's so far in the minority now that probably don't have to worry about them, but there was a time where, um, they were just a thing. So I know that a lot of, um, a lot of people who really focus on front-end work and and libraries like jQuery and now um, React and, and Vue JS and you know there's a new JavaScript library every week. So um, um, I know that if when you use them correctly, you have to worry about that that less that it's going to work differently in this browser than this browser. Um, the nice thing with testing with to bring it back to the automated testing though is a lot of that is automatable now. So I can say. Okay, run through the scenario through uh, Firefox. Okay, now this time run it through uh, IE 11 or um, or Safari or or whatever, and um, find those issues a lot quicker than you would um, if you had to have 12 browsers on your computer and um, go through each one of those one at a time. Yeah, well, it's really
0: interesting to, to to you know to date ourselves once again. You know, in the in the olden days when you got an internet browser you bought it and it mm-hmm. might have come on a disc and then you would you know put that disc into your machine and then you would install the program and that was the program you had uh it, they didn't update um yeah if you wanted an update you had to go buy a new disc and you know mm-hmm. come back and put it in your computer and 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 put that on there and so what would happen in the you know sort of not even just the early days but in you know the in the when the internet started when the world wide web started becoming very popular and things like commerce started to happen on it, people would be like, hey, I, I tried to make a purchase on your website and it didn't work. And then you'd have to ask them, well, then we, we still do this that these days when we people who run e-commerce sites, but still, you know, if someone had an old version of a, an internet browser, then either they couldn't use your site or you had to do something to make it so mm-hmm. that it was compatible with that browser. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, uh, you know, when I'm, I, use, I use Chrome mostly and I see a little arrow when I need to update Chrome or when I have the opportunity to update Chrome and I can just click that and do it. I mean, I'm, I'm not a web developer, but I've often, I've when I read your line uh, about the shitty old version of Internet Explorer, that's what I thought about. And so one of the answers to someone saying, you know, I, it, something on your site isn't working, we can, nowadays, we can say, well, click the update button and you'll, mm-hmm. and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, it's something that you couldn't you couldn't do
1: before. So it's kind of like the the solution is on the other end now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is definitely a lot easier. Um, it does kind of now. Now we're kind of uh, you know instead of the shitty old version, now it's the shiny new version. Like oh, there's this new feature in Chrome that uh, breaks this one weird thing that we were doing. But you know, ideally the tooling is in place to make that fixable and not oh best best used on on uh firefox version this exact version or
0: yeah well it brings it brings i mean updates bring their own hell with them too right so for example it's like oh i click the update button because i associate they would update with improvement and now half my apps mm-hmm. don't work right and, you know and this this is the sort of like you know sweaty finger of death when you go to click the button to update your <laughs> your, your operating system you know yeah. like what is going to happen because i know a bunch of settings are going to change on me I know there are going to be things that I can't work. I mean, I I work on a Mac and I get these periodic warnings like, yeah, your, your operating system doesn't work with this app anymore, you know, Mm -hmm. or or won't work optimally. What does that mean? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, click here to learn more. And it's like, what am I going to learn? Like, but I'm, I'm fine.
1: Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Oops.
0: Yeah. Um, (laughs) so, uh, Moving on to talk about your book. So there you were, you had yeah. this, you started writing this blog and it was doing well mm-hmm. uh, and then you decided to make a book out of it. And it's been, I should say, it, it I think you published it first, the first version on Leanpub in 2012. Uh, and this has been one of our more successful books over time. So it's, it's been a long time that we've been looking forward to talking to you. Um, you decided, well, actually, I guess the first question I should ask is, um, why did you decide to publish the book in progress?
1: So, um, I started this series on test driven development and it was really it was specifically on how I learned to to do it because you know we've talked about it I don't have a a formal background in a lot of this and I was kind of learning it as I went and I knew that TDD was um, seen as valuable uh, within the rails community in particular maybe maybe more than it was in in other software communities at the time so I knew I need to figure this out and I read a lot of books, um, and there there wasn't one book where I just okay, I've, I've got it now. I just kind of kept reading and building on it, reading it, and building on it. And um, so what I did was just kind of made the decision to um, just start simple. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start my testing at the smallest uh, little atoms of of code that I can really test things that are super obvious that I really probably don't need to test but just to kind of get familiar with the flow I'm going to write tests for that I'm going to and I'm going to do it against code that I'm pretty sure already works because you know it's been through the the slow click 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 browser testing it's it's been in production for a while so real users are using it so if if this were a if this were a bug I would know it so, then that way, if I'm writing a test and it doesn't work, I can probably blame the test and not say, well, there's something wrong with the code. So, um, I started there. And then I would, as I got comfortable with that one little piece, I would build out to more, more and more complex um, chunks of code, uh, different scenarios, on up to rather than just saying, okay, just test this one little five line bit of uh, code that's around order processing or whatever, I want to test the entire order process. So going to the site, selecting the book, um, adding it to my cart, saying I want to pay, enter my credit card, click the button, make sure I get the email, make sure that email has a link to download the book, just as an example there. Um, So building up that way rather than just feeling like I have to know everything at once. And it really worked for me. And so I started writing about that and I was, uh, I think at the time I thought, well, this would be maybe a four, five part blog series and I'll call it good. But about three posts in, I was getting really good traction. Uh, like not just the, the regulars that I knew were coming to, to check out my site whenever I had new stuff, but it was getting picked up elsewhere and, and I was getting a lot of new people. And, um, I had recently heard about lean pub at that point um just kind of as a, like a little side conversation and I thought, i'm going to try it and you know the, the strike with the iron's hot um it's got really good traction right now and i'm just going to see how how hard it would be to to take these um these four blog posts i've got right now and turn it into a book and uh from a technical standpoint it turns out Leanpub pub makes that very easy um and cause I was already in Markdown. So I just, you know, copied the files over, had to tweak a few things. And, uh, like a few hours later I had something there and just said, okay, it's not done, but you know, if you want to buy it, kind of support the work. Um, I don't know what to charge. So $9. And, uh, um, I figured maybe I'd sell a few copies, maybe a hundred. And I'd, I hate to say, it, I don't even know how many copies, I think maybe around 6,500 at this point. Um, but it really took off quickly. And, uh, there were a few people who were like, Oh, this isn't done. I want my money back. But by and large people like, Oh, this is great. Um, you know, keep it up. Um, have you thought about including this? And, you know, sometimes it'd be like, that's a great idea. I'll, I'll add that because now it was beyond that. Those four blog posts. It was, you know, how can I make this into something that is worth the money that people are buying? Um, and so, yeah, that's yeah how for, it came to be. Thanks
0: for sharing that. Um, it's uh, it, it's actually really interesting. We're getting into the into the weeds a little bit, and this this sort of typically happens when we're nearing the the sort of last part of the interview where we talk about the practical experience practical experience of being a writer and particularly a self published author. Um, you mentioned that you didn't get too many people saying, "Oh, I bought this book and it's unfinished," um, and I just wanted to. Remark on that because it 's really interesting because you've been you 've been around on Lean Pub since the early days uh, when Lean Pub started uh, the idea of in progress publishing a non fiction book was very unfamiliar to people. Mm-hmm. Um, people were familiar with serial publishing of novels from the nineteenth century, although that had actually sort of fallen out of public awareness, um, so I guess even in fiction at the time it might have been what this book is only three chapters in uh, but um, we basically don't get anybody saying that anymore. People are familiar with the idea. And, and of mm-hmm. course, we've also learned better how to communicate and, and things like that. Uh, put a progress bar under the book, you know, things, things that seem obvious. Uh, but it's actually very rare that we get someone who doesn't notice that the book is unfinished and is surprised. Mm-hmm. And then it's even more rare for someone to not notice that it's unfinished, be surprised, and then be, be unhappy about it. Mm-hmm. um people the, the idea has just caught on and people, yeah. people get it
1: yeah. i i i totally agree and uh what i've found is you know as as people have kind of gotten gotten used to the idea um not not only are they just used to the idea of something being 50 percent done or whatever but they're more open to saying oh i found this issue whether it's a simple typo or I typed in this code and it didn't work. Um, Sometimes it's I didn't explain that very well, so if I reframe it like this, um, that helps explain it better. Um, Or uh, you know, other times it's like, oh yeah, I I screwed that up. Let me let me fix that, and um, you know, thank you very much. And you know, the next version has that corrected.
0: Yeah it's it's really it's been really interesting to watch um not only for us but for our authors as well to see the change over time and and the you know in our early days the idea of intera- of, of an author interacting with a reader terrified a lot of authors mm-hmm. um and intimidated readers but over time we've it's become you know people just they they we've got an email the author link on 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 the landing page for the book and people just click it with abandon and and every, mm-hmm. People have learned how to be polite about it. Yep, They've learned how to, on both sides, um, people have, you know, and once once a reader realizes that they can actually help improve a book, you know, like there's a typo on page 92. Mm -hmm. uh, It's very exciting when they communicate that to an author, get a response, and then see the change in the next version of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the, the days, we, we never actually really heard this speculation all that much, probably because so many pub books are programming books and programmers collaborate all the time and like to help each other out all the time. But, you know, there's never been a kind of jealousy, like, why would I, why would I just go and help someone else with their book? You know, that mm-hmm. we basically never encountered any of that. You know, once people realize we were facilitating this kind of interaction, mm-hmm. the idea clicks, and then when you, you, you sort of dip your toe in the water... But when you start as a reader communicating with authors and, and vice versa, uh, it can become this really rewarding experience and that makes everybody happy. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was you've actually, no, I'm going to ask you about your cover in just a moment, but um, <laughs> you, you you set up a GitHub repo for your sample code mm-hmm. and you invited people to give feedback there. So have you, have you had an experience of getting, you know, pull requests from people that help you improve things and...
1: So it's, it's a little bit weird in that uh, it's not pull request driven. Um, I do uh, use the issue tracker on the, so the, the sample code is in the repo, but not the book's contents. Um, The book's contents I, I keep separate and I, I keep that private just so I can, uh, my writing process can be a little messy sometimes. And there's only so much of that I I need to share with the world, I think. Um, uh, But I, the uh, the translators I've worked with have access to it, and uh, that's what uh, eventually feeds to LeanPub for new books once it's polished up a little bit. But um, the, the public repo is the sample code, and it's structured so that you can check out a branch at a time to go through each chapter. So check out the previous chapter if you're starting at the beginning of chapter two, or check out chapter two if you want to see how, things looked for me once I got everything together. Um, but then GitHub also has issue tracking. And so that's where, um, I send people to, um, um, go and say, "I, I found a typo, even if it's like not in the sample code, but it's like somewhere in the book, that's a good way for me to have a central place to, um, um, keep kind of keep track of those, and then as I fix them in the next iteration, uh, just go off and say, okay, um, you know, thanks. This is fixed in the the September twenty eighteen edition or whatever, and uh, um, mark those off as I go. And you know, I think part of it being a being a programming book, a lot of people are familiar with GitHub anyway, so they um, uh, know how to uh, file issues on an open source project and uh have that dialogue about um well you know can you tell me more about the your setup i, I can't i can't get this to fail the way you did and like, oh it's because i'm using this operating system or this database or whatever and it's oh, okay that that helps me out and i can go from there um every now and then i have somebody who for whatever reason either can't access GitHub. I don't know if there's maybe some limitations in some countries. I'm not sure. Um, or maybe they're just a little shy and they'll email me. And, you know, it, it a lot of times what I'll do then is I'll just post the issue myself on GitHub so other people can see it. So if then if you came along and found that same typo, you could go and say, oh, you know, it's that's already being worked on. So I'm not going to worry about it or I'm going to plus one it or whatever.
0: Yeah. Thanks for explaining that process. That's really helpful to people who are planning their own projects to hear about the experiences other people have had and the the ways they've used the tools that are available to them and the conventions that are available to them out there. So the cover for your book, which I, which I mentioned just briefly, uh, is a cool old red farm truck, uh, really good cover. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you chose that, that particular photo.
1: I, I sometimes think I way overthought the cover. Um, so uh, at one point I, I kind of visualized, and this is, uh, um, you know, uh, a, a pre when I was at a previous job and, um, was just kind of in a different frame of mind around so much was, was new and it was all like so exciting and okay, I'm just, I'm going to write 50 books. And, um, I, I was trying to think around, uh, uh, a theme, you know, like O'Reilly has the animal covers and, uh, um like Manning has their own style and you know, all all the kind of mainstream publishers have their, you can see that cover and say, Oh, that's, that's who published that book. Um, I wanted to have something similar for a series of books around um, software, probably primarily Ruby, which is where the red came in. Um, And I, it, it, I was searching around on a stock photography site kind of, came up with maybe six different uh, cover ideas and uh i have a friend who's a, a graphic designer by trade and kind of worked through the ideas with him and uh, explained what i was thinking of at the time in terms of this kind of being a series at some point and so uh that's that's where we headed with with the truck um i i have an old truck it's not that old and I don't leave a park in a field like that, but uh um it that kind of resonated with me as well. Um uh so yeah, the the series of books with other I don't know if they would have been vehicles or what, um never hasn't hasn't come to pass yet, but that that was the the origin behind the the book cover.
0: Thanks for sharing that. It is it is a really great cover and you know. People sometimes joke about book covers, but it actually is really important to try and find. Find a good mm-hmm. one. And more and more importantly, even even as importantly, one that you're happy with. Yeah. Um and so we've talked about your English language book, but you have a translation into Japanese of the same book. And that's mm-hmm. something I wanted to talk to you about because for a lot of people, you know, if you've if you've written a whole book, uh there's a lot of in one language, there are a lot of other languages in the world and whole audiences you can reach
1: in those mm-hmm. languages,
0: but actually getting a translation done. Uh, is can be a tricky thing. So, how did how did can you tell us the story about how your translation came about and what the how the process worked for you?
1: Yeah. Um, so, there was a Chinese translation before the Japanese one, um, which was just kind of the somebody approached me and uh, asked if they could do it. Uh, had some uh, credentials in that they had done translation work for um, Michael Hartle, who wrote the, uh, the Ruby on rails tutorial that is kind of like the, the gospel of Ruby on rails tutorials. And, uh, so with that, I said, yeah, you know, uh, let's do it. And, uh, so that translation happened and didn't hear a whole lot more after that. And, you know, that's, it is what it is. Um, but kind of following a, not too long after that, uh, a, small team of people from japan said we'd like to do the same thing and you know ruby or japan is the birthplace of ruby and it would be really neat to have that and um so just like you said it's um there are people in japan or many countries who either speak english fluently or speak enough to be able to piece together okay this is what this piece of code means but to um to have it in the native language alongside the code is, uh, can do a lot more to help people understand it. And, you know, I, I, I don't know Japanese or Chinese or I, I know English. Okay. Um, and, uh, so I, I said, yeah, let, let's do it. And, um, it with that team in particular, it, it's been such an amazing experience. Um, you know, we've talked about people, um, submitting uh, issues on GitHub when they find typos or something in the book doesn't make sense. I I think there's there's an extra level of thinking through that when you're having to not just make sense of something, but take something that makes sense in English and make it make sense in a totally different language. And so they found so many things that... in some cases it was, uh, you know, a, a bug in the code or, or a simple typo, but a lot of times it was, you know, this, this does not make sense to me. Um, these, this paragraph, what did you mean? And, you know, I'll go back and read it a few months later and I don't know what I meant. Um, so, um, it used that opportunity to, um, to continually improve the the product the book. Um, and that team in particular was, was, has been really great to work with, um, kind of continuing on with the iterations of the book as, as they've continued over the years. Um, uh, they're, they're right there to, to apply the changes to the Japanese version and they always find new things, uh, with each iteration and we fix them and everybody's content. And, and
0: did they sign a contract with you?
1: The team no, uh, we did it really informally. Um, I, uh, with, with the translations I've done so far, um, the, the people doing the translators keep the royalties on the translated version. Um, I, I maintain rights, um, for whatever that's worth. I mean, if, if somebody said, well, I'm just going to keep on doing it. I, I don't have a team of attorneys in Japan to make them stop, but, um, I kind of feel like it's better to, to, to get the thing out there than really worry about that too much. Um, they, they've been cool about, uh, there's been a few times where, like, oh, you know, we just want to thank you for all the work you did. Here's an Amazon gift certificate or something like that, uh, which, you know, it's not something I ask for, so it was a nice little surprise. Um, but, yeah, for the most part, the, you know, I've, I've never hired an editor to, to help me out with this. So the, the things that they found and have helped me improve, I think, have more than, more than paid for what what they're keeping in royalties rather than me taking a cut of that. I think everybody probably has a, a, a different way they wanna go around or go about something like that, but it's worked well for me.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's such a, it's such a great story. And uh, just one thing I wanted to remark on is that um, in the publishing world, translation is a fraught thing. And in, in in, when, when you're talking about the world of traditional publishing where like there's a company that's the publisher um, that will do all kinds of negotiating for like language rights. to mm-hmm. work. And I really believe that one of the reasons you often hear about, you know, authors are having a hard time making money from their writing is all these incredibly complex conventions that exist around that people think have to exist around doing certain things. You know, a lot of those things don't have to exist. You know, mm-hmm. your, your translators have made a great book, and they've made a fair amount of money. And they've Made that book available to an audience that wouldn't have been able to, you know, improve their professional careers if it weren't for that translation, and it was all done without needing to license regional rights, or anything like that. Um, and it's often a, a sort of classic example for me is people who spend a lot. I just wrote about this recently in a in a post about um, DRM. But you know, there are authors who will sit there worried about piracy and you know, thinking about how can we resolve this? Well, let's get the EU to change all their laws Mm -hmm. and then apply them globally so that, you know, my book doesn't get copied. And it's like, wow, do you ever have things backwards with respect to what you're presumably really trying to achieve, which is to write, not to police the internet and Mm -hmm. to uh, publish and hopefully reach an audience. And, and, you know, in most cases, people are also interested in making some money and Mm -hmm. just, just. not stepping into all these traps you don't need to step into in the first place, carry some risks with it, uh, but it also actually brings with it a lot of very practical benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important when you're you're thinking of being a self-published author to really think through what your attitude is going to be towards these kinds of things in advance. Yeah, or I mean, or learn learn along the way too. Uh, but I would just say that you know, well, we we had one story. I can't point to the specific book where someone saw that their book had been translated into Russian by someone who was not communicating with them about it. They'd just gone and done this. Uh, And instead of getting mad and instead of hiring a team of lawyers, the author of the book contacted the translator who essentially pirated the book into another language and said, hey... I'm writing another book. Do you want to translate that one? Why don't we work together this time? Mm-hmm. And it worked out to great success for both of them. And so, you know, the, the informality and then the sort of accepting a bit of messiness uh, can actually make things a lot, a lot cleaner. Mm-hmm. So the last question I always like to ask on this podcast of Lean Pub authors uh, is, if there was one magical feature we could build for you, or one thing that really Bugs you about LeanPub that we could fix for you. What would you ask us to do?
1: You know, I, for for almost my entire my whole workflow, uh, I, I think LeanPub has been great. Um, I imagine one thing that you've gotten before, and I know is like not a trivial thing to to implement, would be like uh, indexing.
0: Yeah, that's that's um, that's planned in the Markua spec. So for anyone listening, uh, you write you write LeanPub in a flavor of Markdown called Markua. Now, we, have, we all, well, no, that's not exactly right. We have an old thing called lean pub flavored markdown, but we've replaced that with a whole new kind of, you know, markdown for books, basically, called Markua. And it is fully specified. So we've specified how we're going to let you create indexes in books, writing in this syntax, but it's not implemented yet. So it's been, it's the, the plan is there. It's just the execution. But eventually we will have very robust support for book indexes
1: mm-hmm. i kind of feel like that's uh, uh, also not you know with with uh, my books in particular I, i've i've resisted print with them just because they change so often um so you, can, you can keyword search an electronic book um so it makes indexes a little less important than they were with print only but i i do have people ask about it every now and then it, it, it's cool to no, people are thinking about
0: it. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, indexes can be very, very important. Particularly, I mean, you know, obviously, I shouldn't say I don't know if I've ever seen an index. Oh, I probably have in a fiction book, but in a nonfiction book, actually, an index can be a whole. Writing a good index is a whole art unto itself. Um, mm-hmm. if someone wants to look up. You know, you can keyword search for Abraham Lincoln in an ebook, but if you can actually go to an index and look up Lincoln Abraham, and then just mm-hmm. see a structured set of pages. With little descriptors of early life. Mm-hmm. Pages ten to fifteen. You know, that can actually really enhance the experience of, of reading a book and, and getting what you need from it, especially if you're not gonna gonna read the whole thing and you're only there for a specific purpose. Right. So it's something we understand the importance of it and, and we know, you know, authors authors do ask for it and they have been asking for it for years and it is something that we plan to ultimately deliver. Well, thank you, uh, Aaron, very much for taking the time to do this interview. I really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks thank you. for uh, using LeanPub for your books and for being a LeanPub author. Yeah,
1: I'm I've been very happy all these years. So thank you. Thanks. And thanks, as always,
0: to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at LeanPub.com. Thanks.